Hey, everybody. It's Michelle, and I am completely cup runneth over with joy because today I get to announce that Chasing the Swallow, Truth, Science, and Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders is 100% done and in publication, and you can check out your copy on Amazon. And the best part, if that book moves you, if it grows your evidence-based triangle to to engage in interprofessional practice, to do the root cause analysis to why the child is presenting with the PFD, to then engage with the team to get that child to a point of healing so that the real growth can begin, then y'all check out speechtherapypd.com because they are gracious enough to entertain all of these amazing, joyful ideas. And they're currently carrying the book for 13.5 ASHA CEUs. So (sighs) thank you for being a part of the first bite journey that led to chasing the swallow. And be sure to check out speechtherapypd.com for the 13.5 ASHA CEUs that accompany it. Happy learning. Hi, folks, and welcome to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional, a speech therapy podcast sponsored by SpeechTherapyPD.com. I am your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson, MS, CCC, SLP, CLC, the all things PEDS SLP. I am a colleague in the trenches of home health early intervention right there with you. I run my own private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, here in Town, South Carolina, and a guest lecture nationwide on best practices for early intervention for the medically complex and fragile child. First Bite's mission is short and sweet, to bring light, hope, knowledge, and joy to the pediatric clinician, parent, or advocate by way of a nerdy conversation, so there's plenty of laughter too. In this podcast, we cover everything from AAC to breastfeeding, ethics on how to run a private practice, pediatric dysphagia to clinical supervision, and all other topics in the world of pediatric speech pathology. Our goal is to bring evidence-based practice straight to you by interviewing subject matter experts to break down the communication barriers so that we can access the knowledge of their fields. Or, as a close friend says, to build the bridge. By bringing other professionals and experts in our field together, we hope to spark advocacy joy and passion for continuing to grow and advance care for our little ones. Every fourth episode, I join in. I'm Erin Forward, MSP, CCC, SLP, the Yankee by way of Rochester, New York transplant who actually inspired this journey. I bring a different perspective, that of a newish clinician with experience in early intervention, pediatric acute care, and nonprofit pediatric outpatient settings. So sit back, relax, and watch out for all our squirrels and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. All right, folks, we are again take 10,782 of today's episode. Thank you, laptop difficulties, but we are thriving and surviving. I am grateful that we have a dynamic duo joining Aaron and I today for this episode. And again, this is a passion of Aaron's and she has found phenomenal speakers to bring on. And Aaron, do you want to tell him who's coming on today? So we today have Serena Murison. Did I say your last name right? Yes, Murison Murison. Murison and Kylie Jeffrey of PlaySpark, which if any of y'all remember at the beginning of the pandemic when we were all trying to figure out teletherapy, you may remember them from all those green screen tools and ideas that I know a lot of my coworkers actually use when we started. And this dynamic duo is out of Asheville, North Carolina, and they're at PlaySpark on Instagram. And I've really 
enjoyed following them, especially as I've gone through my journey of really working to provide more neurodiversity affirming care with the patients that I work with. And so I'm really excited to have both of them on the podcast today to talk a lot more about that. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. And y'all are so close to me. Yeah, we are. Yeah. <laughs> just to drive away. A short drive. Mm-hmm. Awesome. I'm just glad that my microphone is still working and you can hear me. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> okay. So ladies, can you talk to us about why y'all chose the professions that you chose and then how you moved into PlaySpark as well as neurodiversity affirming care? Kylie, why are you an OT? (laughs) Oh, man. (laughs) On the spot. Lots of reasons. I think when I was in high school, I found OT. I was working with an autistic student and just really kind of exploring what I wanted to do. And OT was the one profession that I really felt like, you know, could make a difference in people's lives. And so I just explored more and I loved how holistic it was and just how much flexibility there was within OT. Serena, why did you want to be an SLP? That's a great response, Kylie. And I love that you're an OT. I honestly, in middle school, I became just obsessed with Eunice Kennedy Shriver, who is the founder of the Special Olympics. And in seventh grade and eighth grade, I went to National History Day all the way to Raleigh and then didn't qualify to go to Washington, D.C. But to talk about Eunice Kennedy Shriver and Special Olympics, and it just became a huge passion of mine, like disability advocacy started really young for me because I have an autistic uncle who has hydrocephalus. And I was just fascinated by how disability was not part of the mainstream culture in America. This started so young. But anyway, once I got into high school, our high school had a progressive education program, and I was able to be a peer helper for all of my electives throughout high school. And I ended up shadowing an SLP, fell in love with her, wanted to be her, ended up finding internships that I could, you know, slip in and watch SLPs. And I just knew that's what I was going to do. But once I went into college, I got fixated on like sociolinguistics, did that in undergrad, and then eventually went to become an SLP in the end, ultimately. Wow. Y'all found this way earlier than I did. <laughs> <laughs> I think we kind of just knew we were going to yeah. do something mm-hmm. with disability. We didn't know exactly where it would land. And we're both super passionate too. So I think we yeah. lead with our passion. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now we wait. don't know what that's like. Wait, how did you guys create PlaySpark? Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like it's such a long story, but also a short story. Kylie and I both worked in rural Western North Carolina as home health therapists. We ended up working in some really difficult homes together that needed very intense intervention. And it would be us on the ground of a house that was dilapidated and us trying to make this therapy work for families who desperately needed it. And we just clicked. And the more we clicked, the more we wanted to do something with each other. and figure out how we can, you know, we were doing the groundwork, we were out in the field, but we wanted to do bigger things. And so originally, we were like, maybe we could create toys, maybe we could create, you know, what could we do? What can we do to put our minds together? So such a long story, but short, we ended up thinking about this idea of PlaySpark kind of collaborating on what kind of toys we can make. And then the pandemic hit and our brains sort of exploded when we had to switch to teletherapy. And we were panicking and we came up with this green screen idea And it was really a financial opportunity for Kylie and I to go off on our own and just seize the moment. And we did it. And now we own a private practice, have PlaySpark for resources, our apparel line. It kind of just exploded and it kind of got out of, I don't know, right, Kylie? Yeah, yeah. It was just an opportunity and we were super nervous about it. And we decided to kind of just jump on it. You know, we were in COVID and we're like, you know, we have the service that people need and let's try this. So I know the pandemic has sucked on multiple levels and we all feel that, but one huge joy that I have found in that is that how so many of us tapped into other talents and resources so that we can still advocate, fight and spread love. Right. So that's yay. Yay. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It was when the pandemic was happening, I remember when it first started, you know, I'm talking, this is the end of March. Kylie and I had a four hour phone call. We were like, something huge is happening. And it's like, we felt, I don't want to get woo woo, but we felt like 
this is going to be like universe shattering, like paradigm shifting. Everything's about to change. We don't know what's going to happen, but something huge is happening. And that was right. Mm-hmm. No, it's okay. When y'all come down, um, Aaron can read your horoscopes like no tomorrow. <laughs> and so like, and Mercury in the retrograde and the things and like, I'll call her and I'm like, is Mercury in retrograde? She's like, yeah, she is. And I'm like, I knew it. <laughs> she's not right now well fun fact Aaron not right we, now Aaron we actually have the same birthday Serena and I do we really yeah we do, we do. We do. you have the same birth. that's so interesting I wonder what your like moon and rising signs are though and how they complement each other yeah I wonder that we'll have too. to look into we'll that yeah <laughs> She read my husband's when, like, last time she was down here, and it was like me and her and our girlfriend Riley, and we were all sitting there. We're like, "Oh my god, that's totally Christian." And Christian's like, "Yeah, I'm uncomfortable now." (laughs) (laughs) But it was spot on. Oh, that's funny. Okay, all right. Well, how I'll start us out with the first question. But how did y'all move into learning about neurodiversity affirming practice? And then go from learning about it to like implementation. But let's start with the learning process. It definitely happened long before the pandemic that we started to really want to do better. Trying to think of like what really sparked it. I think what really sparked it is that we were all, our entire client base was autistic. And Kylie, what do you think really started it? I think, you know, we just started questioning some of our practices and just you know, I think listening to messages from autistic adults, and I think, you know, these, it sparked before the pandemic, but the pandemic was really the first time we had more time to kind of sit down and reflect and really, you know, just reflect on our practices. And we started listening to podcasts and learning from the play therapy world. They're a little bit ahead of us in neurodiversity affirming care and just kind of listening to kind of how their practice was shifting and also listening to autistic voices. And it kind of just clicked for us. This is like, okay, this is a gentler approach to therapy and this aligns with our personal values. And it was something we wanted to explore more. And I really remember, Kylie, like we already felt there was like a dissonance between our therapy, especially in our co-treatments versus our coworkers and just our colleagues. And we felt like, are we crazy? Like, you know, certain things just don't feel right to us and we just don't do them. But we didn't really have the support from continuing education from all of the I mean, I feel like we have hours and hours and hours logged now of support for the reasons why we do therapy the way that we do it. But at that time, we were going off of our gut. And I felt like we were kind of the weird ones. And the more we learned the more we were like oh wow this actually is what we've been doing but now we have the language to support it now we have the knowledge of why we do it this way and why it feels icky when we don't do it this way yeah that resonates so much with me and I think I mean Michelle was my supervisor as a graduate student so when I watched her do therapy it was very child-led it was on the floor it was like really diving into what and it was so much joy and so that's how I Like that just made sense to me. And so that's how I always did therapy. But I felt the same way where like I'd be the one running around the clinic and it was just like, oh, that's just Aaron. Like Aaron just runs around the clinic with her kids and, you know, that's just an Aaron thing. And then when I learned more about like, it just made sense. I was like, I'm not the weird one. Like there's a reason I felt this in my gut. And now that I can like explain it to families and especially families that have maybe had therapy done a certain way for such a long time, it like makes you feel like not that it's about us at all, but it's a nice feeling to be like, okay, this is validated in how I feel like we should be doing therapy. Yes. Yes. Totally. What I have seen on the outside, because I still feel like I'm on the outside because I'm learning and I'm part of that. I am older than (laughs) y'all. That's what I'm trying to get at here. So, What I have found is that it is harder for clinicians to embrace change when it pulls them out of their comfort zone. And when, if you don't stay abreast of current evidence-based research and it's harder to do, there is a 20 to 30 year lag time between research to practice. And we know that, right? Well, then you take into account that not everybody is super nerd girls, 
and takes as many continuing education courses as some of their peers. Some people financially can't afford it. And trust me, I get that. We did six months of mommy not working with bed rest and complicated pregnancies. I been there, done that. Thank you. Paid off the $48,000 of medical bills. But you know what? I have two healthy sons and most of my innards. So we're okay. (laughs) (laughs) But I say this because I know that there's barriers to access, getting access to the information, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. But there's also mentorship and opportunities that are available to expand and grow because we have to do better. But that being said, on this side, when we're looking at wading into how to do better, what were your initial courses that you took? What was your driving evidence for like how to implement this? So I would say before you even consider your courses, you need to join online communities that are centered around autistic voices. That is the first step. So joining, you know, checking out Autistic Self-Advocacy Network, Autistic Women Non-Binary Network. Wait, you're saying it's so fast and I'm so slow. <laughs> oh, and sorry. I need <laughs> ASAN is the Autistic Self-Advocacy Network. They are a nonprofit organization run entirely by autistic adults. They weigh in through blog posts on different central issues surrounding therapy and autistic-centered concepts. So like, that would be a great place to start. Autistic Women and Non-Binary Network is another great nonprofit that Kylie and I actually donate to through our apparel website, and they are fantastic. Another great resource. And then, I mean, I hate to lead people to Facebook because Facebook is a hellscape in a lot of ways, but (laughs) there are some fantastic autistic-led Facebook groups. One of them is called Ask Me, I'm Autistic. There's another one called Autistic Allies. There's one group called Neurodiversity Affirmative Therapists. Those are just to name a few, but those groups, before you even dive into your choosing of courses. Kylie and I scoured those groups. We fine tooth combed pages and pages and pages of autistic adults for counting experiences they'd had in therapy, experiences they've had in the world, and how that those experiences informed these ideas of how to transform the way that we do therapy now. And that's all free. So that's free, a free way to access firsthand accounts of how some things are harmful and causing trauma to children. And that was like, it was an awakening to read. And then from that point forward, the first course that we completed was Meg Proctor's Learn, Play, Thrive Approach to Autism. That's a fantastic course. We just had her on. Erin introduced her to our world as well. So yes. Yes. She's wonderful. We loved her course. That was the first foray for us into, you know, getting actual continuing education on these topics. Of course, then we became floor time certified, which is a big commitment. Meaningful Speech has a great continuing education about gestalt language processing, which is another neurodiversity affirmative approach about natural language acquisition. Jesse Ginsburg, I completed the sensory certificate. Obviously, Kylie doesn't need that. She's an OT. Um, but for SLPs, that was another neurodiversity affirming course. And it just became one after the other. I feel like we'll never stop now. Mm-hmm. And I think that a lot of people that are in this with us and doing this education, it's passion work for them as well. So I think once you join those groups, a lot of the times they'll point to resources and webinars and courses. And I think I would say majority of the courses that we've taken have been free. So there was one in play therapy that we took that was really great. And the Star Center is another center that focuses on sensory processing. And they've been doing a lot of education about neurodiversity affirming care. So there's definitely resources out there. I think once you join groups and you get connected to the network, then you start seeing more opportunities and just kind of what all there is offered. The podcast too, Kylie, we've listened to probably a thousand hours of podcasts that's completely free. Affect Autism is a fantastic podcast centered around floor time concepts. That podcast is just, it's just myriad information. Like you could listen to the whole thing and feel like you got something and it's free. So it doesn't have to cost a ton. No. I'm screenshotting 
all of this as we're going along to make sure that we share this so that folks have it. Because I'm a visual learner. So when you're saying it, I'm like, oh, no, I got to see it or it's going to go in and out. Gotcha. I'm sorry. I know I'm a fast talker. I mean, it's all right. I talk like a robot half the time. So (laughs) (laughs) thank you, podcast recording errors. Go team. Okay. All right. These are great resources. Thank you. My pleasure. Do you have do you have any that you want to add? I honestly think they said most of the ones I would recommend. Yeah, I listened to like Mike Proctor's podcast is great. I listened to that a lot. And her podcast has led me to a lot of other resources. And she has a lot of autistic voices on her podcast. I did just think of someone we forgot to mention, which is Rachel Dorsey. Oh, go ahead. Rachel yes, Dorsey is yes. an autistic SLP. And she, through Meg Proctor, hosted a CEU course about neurodiversity affirming goal writing. That's an excellent course to take as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I love floor time was like, and floor time is very much a philosophy. And so it just gives you more of a framework as to how to kind of dive into your therapy, how to look at yourself and how to reflect on you as a person and your individual differences and how they correlate with the type of therapy that you do. So it's not for the faint of heart. I mean, it's very, you really have to look inside yourself, which I think if you're gonna, as you should, when you dive into providing more neurodiversity affirming care, you're going to have to look inward a lot at what you may have been doing, what you, you know, and realizing when you know better, you do better. And that, you know, it's no one's fault for the type of therapy that you were providing that we were told was evidence-based that we didn't know may have been harmful, but you really do have to, to kind of take a step back. So I have to ask for the clarification because I haven't taken the floor time course and I'm willing to bet there's a bunch of folks out there listening that haven't. So what does it mean when you say floor time? Like, can you describe what that session would look like as a caregiver or as a colleague that's unfamiliar with it? What are we looking at? And then oh, that's a loaded question. It's <laughs> a very loaded question. It looks like play, Michelle. It looks like play. Okay. It looks like joy. That's the goal. Like when someone says to me, they're like, oh, and y'all put in, you know, all your two cents too. But when someone says to me, oh, you just play with them all day. That's great. That I'm glad it looks like that because I'm doing a lot of other. And you're looking at development from a different lens is also what floor time allots in the functional emotional developmental capacities. There's, there's different ways that you're looking at their development in context with whatever specialty you are. And it's been really helpful for me to have that framework. Yeah, and I agree. I think, you know, floor time, it has these pillars. The official name is DIR floor time, but the pillars are looking at development and then looking at individual differences and it's relationship-based care. So I think those are the big three concepts that floor time encompasses. And becoming a floor time practitioner, you really focus on development and then the differences that make up the child and then really just focusing on the relationship. So it's a lot of play and a lot of building rapport and trust and using that as a modality for therapy. Yeah, absolutely. It's honestly a paradigm shifting. The 101 course is worth taking alone. It's more affordable and it's for parents and for any caregiver and for therapists. And then if you're, you know, like you said, a nerd girl or nerd boy and you want to go further, which Kylie and I did go further, we went through the 201 course, which now we're already planning the next course. We want to just continue doing it because it shaped so much of what we already felt to be true. But now, like I said earlier, we have language, we have a concept, and we have a philosophy that's based in Stanley Greenspan's, you know, that affect, what is it, Kylie? affect diathesis hypothesis I think is what it is which is basically that your affect drives meaningful development with children and it's just such a wonderful course I cannot speak highly enough about it and I don't know if Erin what place you're at in it but I'm on 202 right now so 202 I finished 201 and I was like okay I guess I'm just gonna sign up for 202 now and oh so you've already finished 201 Uh huh. It's not the thing about 201 is that it's a big time commitment. And yes, not (laughs) if you're a very full, like Kylie and I were privileged enough to be fully self employed, able to manipulate our schedule to accommodate for DIR. But it is hard to just tell therapists, like, well, you should come DIR certified. Like, you know, it's a big commitment. 
it's homework, it's case recording. Like, yeah, recording you have to of film yourself. yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you have to film yourself. And I, I mean, I had to film myself multiple different times to try and get the right videos. And you know, it's a whole thing. But it's so great. And it's so oh, I love it. it. I love, yeah. love, love, loved it. Man, I feel like I'm left out of the party. And like, <laughs> Michelle, but I would like you to know that you, I mean, you, you already are. You, you already, like, you do a lot of this. This is in your nature. This is how you do therapy. You just, I mean, I, I think it, it would come naturally to you. Yeah. yeah. And you also are, like, doing five million other things. So, like, you got to, I will, you know. <laughs> That's the God's honest truth. Dun, dun, dun. Okay. All right. Give us how has this changed your practice? How are y'all implementing it? How are you engaging with the caregivers when you're doing this? Because I also know that a huge part, especially of early intervention, is caregiver coaching. So like, it's not us just going in and on the surface looking like we're playing with the child and letting them lead. But how are you actually coaching the caregivers through here? Do you mean in relation to floor time or in general? Yeah, in general. In general. Floor time as well as how are we coaching the caregivers to well, it's a shift for a lot of caregivers. Like it's a big shift for a lot of them and, and things that they hear. And I mean, I don't know what it's like where y'all are, but in South Carolina, a kid may not even ha- yet have an autism diagnosis. They may have a probable autism diagnosis and that pediatrician is writing a script for ABA. Let so, me tell you, this is actually key. And this is what I would tell my graduate students right now if they were with me. And that is parent education about confronting biases, parent education about autism acceptance. It's so key. And you can do that through modeling. But in order to get everybody on board as a team together, and Kylie and I have become kind of like wizards at this is without being confrontational, without ever judging a family, we're going to model and show how we do therapy and then talk to families afterwards. Like we do this this way, because this fosters their independence, but also, you know, it depends on the child, whatever we're going to work through. But I think in the past, we were much more reserved about talking to families about difficult topics. Like, you know, the reason you don't see us doing this, that like, they might say, you know, it looks really different than the last speech therapist we have. Like she usually did this. And I'll say like, the reason you don't see me doing that, and it has nothing to do with the professionalism of your previous SLP is that I operate under this philosophy. And Kylie will say the same exact thing. So first we communicate like extensively with families about how therapy is going to look with us. And then inviting families, floor time is all about inviting families into the session and getting in there with you because you are just a tool. You are just an assistant and, you know, the parent is the true therapist. So yeah, that's what we do. We try to grab them. And if we, if there's a chance that the parent can't be present in the session, we like Kylie and I will sit together after and conduct like a a full, you know, page long email to parents containing all of the stuff that we worked on, which, you know, isn't ideal. It's not what we want. We want them in the session with us. And I think too, something that we make a point to do, like you said, is we talk about these big concepts. And so, you know, the phrase presuming competence, that's a big phrase in the therapy world. But what does that mean to a parent? And so just presenting those big concepts within the sessions and showing what presuming competence means and just empowering parents with the education and um, best tools to support their child um, through those conversations and then just showing through different modalities. Just a really quick plug to Andy Putt's autism handout for parents. She is an SLP and this handout packet is so lovely and definitely neurodiversity affirming and helps if you're an SLP who's super busy and doesn't have time to craft all of your own beautiful handouts to help families navigate big concepts, that packet is great. And that's Miss and I, Yeah, Miss EGP on Instagram. Oh, yes. Yeah. I love all the stuff that she posts. And I also love, because I don't think we talked about all of y'all's apparel that I own a lot of. Oh, and yay. I'm yay. currently purchasing while we're sitting here on. But the- it's been yeah. it's been a wonderful way of opening a lot of those conversations with families and with other coworkers, because you know when I'm wearing my presumed competence sweatshirt, you know parents are asked more about what that is, and it, it's a wonderful opener for that for them to ask those questions and. 
what I struggle with sometimes with parents is, and when you work with children, you work with adults as well. And so you have to, you're not only building that relationship with the child, but then you're also trying to navigate your relationship with the parent. And then how do I build this child, not parent, caregiver, grandparent, aunt, uncle, whoever, sibling, how do I help that relationship as well? And figuring out the capacity of the caregiver to work within this framework. So it's a lot of diving into that as well, because you may have a session with a child and be able to build that relationship, but then you don't want to take away those moments from the caregiver either, because that's the most important thing. My dad always says, you live in the house you grew up in. And so you also have to remember that as much as this caregiver may be shifting, like they grew up and things have really changed since, you know, our parents were the way that we view, you know, autism parenting in general. So it's a lot of navigating between so many different dynamics, which can be difficult at times. Yeah, and I think something that's great about neurodiversity affirming care and just really adopting this mindset, it is very trauma-informed as well. And so, you know, it takes on that lens of meeting the child, but also the parent where they're at and, you know, just reading their cues and understanding, you know, what happened to them in the past. And we really tried to make a point to have extensive conversations with parents and even at our intake form, just to kind of understand the parenting approach and just kind of where they're at in their understanding. And I think that makes such a huge difference because you start that relationship on the right foot and you're just really allowed to be trauma-informed and relationship-based and start from that foot. And it's also so, so key to understand that you are not, like you just said, Erin, you're not in the same position as these parents. They're starting from level zero. You're maybe, you know, super gung-ho and passionate about this topic and you can't just jump into a family who's mourning the fact that they just got an autism diagnosis and say, autism is awesome. Here's why. Look at this. This is wonderful. Actually, it's not a problem. You know, that doesn't help families. What really helps families is knowing that they have a team that's going to help them navigate through this. And you really have to go slow. That's like one of my biggest challenges is I want to drive home these huge concepts, big ideas, change their mind. But that's, it's not reading the room. You have to read your room and know when it's appropriate to talk about how ABA is harmful. If if ABA is what's helping this family right now, and they can't imagine life without it, you don't go in and say, you know, that most autistic adults see that view this as abuse. Uh, absolutely not. You know, you never want to make a family feel more panicked and stressed about the prospect of their therapy journey than that. So, you know, that's not the goal. Yeah. So I was a mom of a child with therapy. Bear couldn't hear. And actually Aaron was the student clinician that worked with the audiologist to give Bear the very first he passed one ear that day with you, I think. And yeah, we got through one year. We got through one year, but I got to tell you on the mom side, one, it's wicked hard to be a practitioner in our field and have a child with a delay, a disorder, a need and embrace it. It's scary because we know just enough to be dangerous. Right. But Going in and having somebody meet me where I am in my grief cycle without passing judgment and just being able to say, hey, I am here and this is what we can do. And and your child is amazing and your child is going to move mountains and we can do this together. And then like laying out a functional framework. It's profound. So on behalf of moms... Thank you. (laughs) You are so, so, so right. Mm -hmm. And Floor Time talks a lot about Weight Watch Wonder in the Mm -hmm. session. Yeah. But just as you were saying, read the room, I think we need to Weight Watch Wonder with our caregivers also, because you don't know what you don't know. And that's what I love about the ability to go in home. I work at a nonprofit clinic and I'm the... I started our in-home program. So I'm the only therapist that goes in home right now. 
someone else goes in home for a couple patients, but I love both. Like I love, I think there's positives to every setting, negatives to every setting. But I remember, you know, when I worked at another job, you'd hear people make comments about like, oh, this caregiver doesn't care or they just aren't putting in the effort. And I would say, you have no idea what is going on in that home. You have no idea what is going on in that caregiver's life. Even though I go in the home, I may know a little bit more, but you know, I, there would be a patient that would cancel every once in a while and I go in the home and the caregiver has a bed set up on the couch because that child has a bed in the living room and they wake up every five seconds to make sure the alarms aren't going off on their vent. So like you have to, I think, as we presume competence with our patients, we presume competence with the caregivers and like believe that they're doing the best that they can and in that same way. But the difficulty and but what I love about what we do is that you have to figure it out for both. You have to build that relationship with both. And sometimes when you first start, that's not a match. That's also why you're there. So it's really cool when you see that shift as well. That is so true. I'm just processing everything. I'm sorry, y'all. I'm just processing. And I have a little one that I'm currently working with. And they were getting therapy at another clinic. And the mom is young. And she is a minority. And this little guy was a micro preemie, but he's presenting with signs and symptoms of ASD, right? Nonverbal. And I hate, I know there's a better word to say that, but this is what came to me on the paper, nonverbal eval treat. And he was soaking it all in. So I busted out my handy dandy lamp from Talk to Me Technologies and we got on a swing and I started modeling on a swing and I want to go. And then next thing I know in like minutes, he is saying go and then pushing the swing as fast as he can go. And like, also like I've got motion sickness. So like shell definitely popped her butt off that swing real quick. <laughs> because <laughs> like it's not, It is not friendly to puke on your patients. So like, <laughs> But like mom was right there and like I worked, I talked with mom and like coached mom on like, you know, what are your goals? Like we routines based interview, like talk to me about your day. Like where can we plug in? What can we focus on? And like in weeks, this kid's whole world, like he's the tantruming has like, cause mom knows how to read him and is tuning into his cues, what he's telling her and It's amazing to see how he's using multiple modalities of communication and mom's now using multiple modalities of communication and watching this bond emerging. And last week she was like, this has changed my world. And that's just one moment in time. And as I'm sitting here looking back, I'm like, what could I do different? What could I do better? But like, I let him lead. Sounds like, like I know you did y'all. a great job with him. I agree. I'm just most proud I didn't throw up, but like, you know. Like, <laughs> no, you should be like most that. proud that you met that mom where she was and gave her what she needed to be able to succeed with her son. But that's just it. It was just like you said, it was reading the room. It was it was a moment in time. And guys, I'm putting in a case study here so that y'all get, it took us literally getting down eye level and giving him a different option. And what I also see is that in the world of early intervention, there is a hesitancy to bring in speech generating devices and fully embrace multiple modalities of communication. Folks either go ASL or they go to PECS or that's it. And that's we a could whole do a, conversation we could do a for whole another other, Yeah, we could talk about that for hours. Of course, introduction of like a full language system is ideal. And it Wait, talk to me. How do you do that? How do you do that in embracing neurodiversity? How do we introduce augmentative communication devices with neurodiversity? Mm -hmm. Well, that is everything. So that's like the whole concept of presuming competence. So children who who are non-speaking, they might not be speaking, but they are verbal. We are all verbal. Even verbalizations are, you know, 
you might hear a child, do they verbalize? Do they make sound? Then they are verbal. So they don't speak in words orally, but once we introduce a full language system, ProLoquo to Go, there's so many great ones that you can introduce on the iPad. There are ways that you can get grants. Medicaid does great funding. You have to, you know, there's, I could talk about this forever, but the introduction of this full system, not PECs, allow, there's so much opportunity and there's so much possibility when you continue to model in natural play, true language that, I mean, you can introduce this as early as 18 months, even earlier, honestly, but there's no research to suggest that that would ever delay language. So that's something I talk to families about all the time. They're really concerned that if we, once we introduce this device, are we just giving up on speaking? And absolutely not. If a child is going to speak, that device will only assist. And if the child is going to speak through the device, well, awesome, because we need it. Because otherwise, how what avenue will they have to say what's on their mind? Okay, so correct my language. We don't say, I should not say nonverbal. I should say non-speaking. You could say intermittently speaking, partially speaking, occasionally speaking. You know, I don't want to be a language police, but I know that the term nonverbal is overall kind of, we're, we're kind of moving through that term, mainly because there's so much connotation with nonverbal now, it means also that you don't have receptive language, that you don't have input, but you do. And so from changing it to speaking, you know, there's a number of different things you can say, but yeah. See, I'm learning. I I know it's not right, but I didn't know what word to substitute with. Right, right. Well, it was, I remember, I think it was, what's her name? Authentic AAC. I forget what. Kate McLaughlin, did I make that up? Yeah, that's right. That's right. When she said it's not about, it's the importance of them having that self-advocacy and autonomy to say what they want as opposed to saying what they might not want independently. And the importance of it being such a robust system really shifted the way that I introduced AAC because similar to how what we're learning about just salt language processing, like I was all you were always taught to introduce AAC, like they're an analytic learner and they're going to develop language in these pieces. Right. And so from small to big, and it was so beautiful. And I mean, I have Michelle, you always taught me parallel talk, which what you didn't realize was teaching children scripts that they could then use in other parts of their life and learning through scripts. And that's how I did a lot of my therapy with a lot of the autistic children I worked with. And I remember, I always tell the story about this boy who I treated, who I'm in love with and wish I still saw him, but he would, when we were, weren't doing what he wanted, he would say five miles an hour and he'd get really upset. And then when we got to doing what he wanted, he'd say, I can't remember exactly what it was because it was from cards. He'd say like 25 miles an hour because he was excited and we were moving and I love a puzzle. And I know that like not in the point of like a puzzle piece of that, but I love working through and trying to figure out all how these individual differences can, we can use those as strengths. And it's just, it's so beautiful what I learn from the children I work with because they see there's things that they see in this world that like, because of my individual differences comparative to theirs that I don't see or feel or hear or And so it teaches you a lot when you take that step back and realize that you're not necessarily the expert, you're just a facilitator almost, if that makes sense. Yes, totally. Y'all have a favorite little one, like a favorite story where it just like, where you had this like aha moment, like it just stuck. This is it. I'm on the right path. I love those. Kylie and I have shared so many clients. I'm like racking my There's so, so hard many. to think. <laughs> There's so many. Oh, one client really comes to mind, but it, I don't know if it'll be the same as Kylie's. Who are you thinking, Kylie? Well, you know who I'm thinking. <laughs> it's a, it's a, I love how everybody's being HIPAA compliant, but yet somehow sending telepathic messages through their microphone. Feel <laughs> me in the universe. Yes, yes. So, what was who, it, Kylie? <laughs> so we had this one client who was probably our most difficult case. Is this the one you want to talk about? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> so it was just client- a really hard case. 
And Serena begged me, <laughs> begged me to take on this case when she started seeing him first through early intervention. And she was just like, I need support. You know, this. I case. need an OT. I need Kylie because yeah. I, the sensory needs were so, this was when I think Kylie and I really started to realize like we need to co-treat more because I felt lost and I knew I was missing like half of the piece. Like I knew something was just you know, this client was, he could not stay still. He could not regulate. And I mean, he was in danger of being hospitalized for his behavior every day. So what would end up happening is the family would, they not knowing what to do or what steps to take, he lived in a car seat a lot because he was such a danger to himself. And whenever I would go there, I would just feel so overwhelmed. I would take him out of the car seat and we would try to do outside because inside was so dangerous for him. And once Kylie joined, it was like, (sighs) thank God I need direction. And so we kind of just, I mean, what was the question? (laughs) Your case. Just a moment when it clicked, like when, you know, you, especially with the development that y'all have had in your practice, like how you were like, okay, like I get it. I get why I'm doing this. Yeah. And I think this is before we were in private practice together. So this was a moment of like, this is how it should be. Because all tradition, this is what it was, is that traditional therapy methods that we both had in our back pocket were not effective with this client because what he needed was truly floor time. What he needed was like a way to connect with people and a way to feel safe in his body so that he could, you know, have any kind of shared enjoyment with a partner. And what we realized is like, it's not about even like, forget the toys, all of these different things that you know, all, you know, the go-to methods don't work because what only thing that's going to work with him is finding a way to reach him and connect with him. And so Kylie and I tried everything. I mean, I feel like we really, once it happened, once he saw us, like there was a moment outside in the grass, we took him outside and we got him to run to us, to play with us. And it was like, oh, he's here. Like, you know, he's here with us. And he was so calm and in our arms. Oh, Kylie, those are good memories. Yeah. And it was something as simple as his body needed the vestibular and proprioceptive input of rolling down a hill. Like that was so oh, organizing yeah. for him. And so therapy that day, it looked like, you know, caregivers outside us in this field, rolling down a hill with this child, just organizing so his sensory muddy. system. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely had to bring a change of clothes a few days. But that was just a, a moment of, you know, this is how it should feel. This is right. We're letting this child lead. This is the path that we want to be on. And it just felt good. It felt really good to be able to tell those caregivers like they could see it. You know, once he got back into the house after he felt regulated, the dangerous behaviors were gone. You know, he wasn't seeking to hurt himself or hurt others or hurt, you know, pieces of the house or try to get inside the oven or whatever else he was, once he was regulated, it all evened out. He felt safe. He felt secure. He didn't need to seek all of that input. And the parents really, they were like, wow, wow. So sometimes therapy, I think at that point we were like, you know, therapy doesn't always look like therapy. Definitely. I have this, this is the hardest part when I try to convey to colleagues that want the child to sit down and go through flashcards, or they think the child needs to sit still for two to three minutes in order to engage in speech therapy, or they they think- To do non-preferred activities. Non-preferred activities, or when they think it should be 100% parent coaching, but yet the child is completely dysregulated. Just- Yes. Yes. And that to me is- Those approaches may work for outliers in the environment, maybe a child with a very mild language delay or a child like Bear who progressed and then needed Arctic and phenological awareness skills, right? Or a child who is in our world, we speech pathologists also address dyslexia, who's working on the printed word, right? Different levels. But for these children that are at this developmental window and have these level of needs, this is why we engage with OTs and SLPs. This is why we don't 
practice as silo practitioners. And I hear you, I hear your brains working in overdrive saying, but I don't have an OT near me. I don't know how to do this. And I'm going to quote Aaron, OTs don't own sensory. And then I'm going to caveat with, but we weren't trained. So then I put it back on us, but that is why we need to train and collaborate. And folks, this is how you change kids' stars. I also love that y'all started floor time together. Like I have a friend who is an occupational therapist and she is my like partner in crime. And we took the 201 course together and it's like the most beautiful thing to have someone who has a little bit of a different mindset and has a different scope, but you're learning this philosophy together and you can bounce those ideas off of each other. Like if you don't have, if you're a speech therapist and you don't have an OT best friend, and if you're an OT and don't have a speech therapy best friend, like you should find one. <laughs> I'm serious. And I'm also telling exactly. you guys, you might not have one in your area, but this is what the beautiful world of the online therapy community is that you can follow OT accounts that align with yours. And you, you know, you can have conversations together and it's worth reaching out to OTs who have I mean Kylie provides insight that no matter what amount of sensory training I've taken I still don't have the tools she has but I mean you need a baseline knowledge because if you're sitting at a table with a child like the one we just described it's it's simply not therapeutic it's not going to be effective the progress won't be there because he will be you know getting into that back arch position and crying you don't want to put clients through that level of stress due to our lack of understanding of how to help them regulate And I think it's even as simple as like just, you know, practicing the strategy of zooming out. And, you know, I've seen so many speech therapists just focus on, you know, the mouth and just the head and upper body. And so it's frustrating as an OT to see that because, you know, you're treating the whole child. And so even if your first step that you take is just zooming out and looking at the child's body and kind of reflecting on, you know, why are his legs doing that and looking at the body more holistically and just continuing you're learning because, you know, the table isn't an optimal space for a lot of the kids that we see. Yeah. I mean, the other day, Kylie and I were working with a client in a sensory gym and speech really wasn't, couldn't be the focus of that session because she was so dysregulated that Kylie needed to whip out that body brush and we needed to really ground ourselves and speech can't, when you're not regulated, speech therapy is almost impossible. Right, Kylie? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's hard. You know, when your focus is, I mean, it's like, we've all felt it when our body is dysregulated. It's very hard to focus on like language and focus on what, you know, a game or a toy or, you know, you just don't feel good in your body, but to get regulated first, this is a lot of what Jesse Ginsburg talks about in the sensory certification program, which I do also recommend, especially if you don't have an OT to collaborate with, because you need those grab, like just those basic, basic levels of understanding, like okay, clearly our attention is way off. What's going on? What can we do with our body to try and get you to be able to participate with me? And that's always priority number one. And I think too, like when speech therapists have the sensory strategies, they are more equipped to know when to bring OT on. At our previous job, so often I would, you know, be walking by a room and just kind of seeing speech therapy happen. Hearing us, hearing hearing, like children screaming and... Yeah, yeah. And so if you don't know what to look for, you know, you don't really know how to appropriately make that referral. And so I think baseline knowledge is, you know, critical and every SLP should have it just because, you know, you need to know when it's time to reach out and when you need more assistance than those baseline strategies. Basically, any new kid I get, I'm going to attempt a co-treat with the OT. And now I'm at this amazing private practice that is OT founded. And it has like four or five full-time OTs and only one full-time SLP. And then myself and another woman were like part-time. That sounds like a great practice. (laughs) Freaking amazing. Oh my God. This is what I'm telling you. Yes. It's changing. Like I know my stars are blessed and I walk in every day and because it's an OT driven practice, everything in this facility is functional. Like the entire thing is functional and we're actually, they've even put in an AAC board on their playground outside because I requested like, which is like 
been a dream. Aaron could tell you how many years I've been like dreaming over a communication board at a playground, but here we are. And the entire day is child-led activities. And if a child comes in screaming and hooting and hollering because, you know, there was a buildup, a crescendo of events, it's amazing to watch an OT scoop in and then y'all do magical things with the caregiver there and talking. And all of a sudden we go from like 180 miles an hour and we're angry at the world to, hey, I can tell you I'm mad. And it's just... God, it's beautiful. It's beautiful. I honestly don't know what I would do without my OT, which is Kylie. (laughs) But there's so much that, oh, it's like, yes, I didn't know that that's what I was doing. But Kylie's like, OTs will remind you what you're doing with your body, too. I mean, I know not everyone says lucky to have the ability to co-treat with an OT. But if you can, and you know one, and you have that option, take it. Because I think a lot of a lot of therapists don't co-treat. And once you start, you're like, I can't do it without you. Yes. Yes. And I think too, this kind of plays back onto floor time as well. You know, they discuss individual differences and just thinking of our bodies and our individual differences. And, you know, I think just being able to reflect upon your sensory profile and your individual differences and how that may impact your sessions is so huge. And it does help so much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because and- obviously, Kylie and I are both neurodivergent. We both got stuff going on. And sometimes you're like, you know, <laughs> I realize like I am not regulated. I'm so loud. I'm all over the place. Like I need to regulate myself before I jump in and try to help this child regulate when I'm like, you know, hyperactive beyond compare. And that goes back to affect too. So I have a much calmer affect than Serena. I'm Oh my god. I'm a little bit more grounded and so thinking of our affect in sessions, it's amazing to see cuz we're just bouncing off each other, you know. If but the, the other child- day Kylie, like you said to me, you said in like the kindest way, but like I think she's overwhelmed by how much is happening in this room, which was like telling me like I am overwhelming her and that like, I need to take a break and be quiet and just watch Kylie do some things. And like, it's not we don't both have to be hands on every second, I can like watch and learn for a minute. And then we can jump back in. But it just helps it helps to know when someone else is able to. I mean, of course, we're like an like, it's awesome to have like two floor time certified OT SLP that the duo is really nice. But it's really great when someone like can stop you and say like, hey, I think that this is like, a little much right now. Let's try and take, take a step back. Totally. Oh, so or when an OT tells much. Michelle, don't yell at your child. <laughs> huh. Our um, OT from there. one day told Michelle a long time, why are you yelling at your patient? <laughs> oh, yes. I know. Okay, Michelle, <laughs> I relate. I relate. <laughs> Dude, and I wasn't, I didn't think, I mean, I wasn't like yelling like you have made bad choices. We are too I was loud. like, no, no, no. I was, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And but like, yeah, also it's our girlfriend, Crystal, and she's been on the podcast and she called me out because Bear was like misbehaving and being ornery and I was coddling him because he was like two and like he'd had all these things and I had mom guilt. And she looked at me over a glass of red wine. She held it up to kind of like half cover her face, cut her eyes at me over the tip of the rim of the glass and goes, you wouldn't let your patients get away with that. Why are you letting your two-year-old get away with that? He is walking all over you. And it was like, snap, there's your sign. And I was like, oh my God he needs all the therapies and like, (laughs) yeah, he's just got a case of the bads and like, yeah. And then we, Oh, Oh, things changed ever so quickly. But I do sometimes miss his, his bads to say his bads. He used to say, come shit with me. And it like, he had a lateral list, but like, he also knew what he was saying. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I love that. Yes. All right. So, we had a Wait, can bit- y'all really quick tell us, because I'm obsessed with all the things that you make and I wear it all the time. Like, can y'all just quickly talk about like your inspiration for making like the shirts and the sweatshirts and like how that part before we leave? Cause I love them. I'm just going to say, <laughs> and where Kylie people Wall, can find them. Kylie is an artist and a graphic designer. Like that's her other passion and heart. Oh, casual. Yeah, casual. (laughs) But she designs all like all of our apparel and fonts and, you know, the brain and the flowers and spends out like she's just an artist. So we took that and we ran with it. But 
what else, Kylie? Yeah, both of us had this desire to bring in this creative element into our day job. And, you know, we got some of that when we were doing the green screen, but we wanted to continue it. And so I am an artist, but Serena is also super crafty. And so we're just brainstorming ideas of how we can, you know, bring that craft into neurodiversity affirming practice. And we landed on the idea of doing advocacy through apparel. And so we brainstormed just some ideas for original shirts and we learned how to screen print and we're like, okay, let's just try this and see and and see how we can, you know, continue to this creativity. And so now we have an apparel shop and we create the designs and all of our apparel is surrounded around kind of all the things that we've talked about today. And the intention is really just to help therapists or parents or anyone that wears our apparel to start conversations about these things and kind of bridge the gap and, you know, just get conversations rolling. And it's dangerous because I just spent $152. Oh my God, my <laughs> husband's going to kill me. Not really, because I saw him looking at his fancy cargo pants that he wears all the time today. So like, eh. but they are amazing. Can I make a request though? Please. Yes. Can you please add in a pediatric feeding disorder like option, like a PFD one? That would be just delightful. Like potentially send us some ideas. <laughs> You'd have to send oh, us. Some- a- yeah, I can do that. Oh God, it's already in my head. You don't know what you asked for. Yes. And oh wait, could we have maybe some of the I'll send my idea, oh, but goodness. maybe like y'all want to send like a donation to like dysphagia outreach project. So we could maybe like, maybe we should do a collaboration where we do like a limited release of your shirt and we can give Ooh, proceeds to your, to your Oh my God, that would make my heart so happy. I almost started crying. Yes, please. <laughs> we'll, yeah. de- we'll definitely have to chat about this more. Yeah. Okay. Oh, yay. Okay. Good times. Oh, good things. Yes. Okay. All right. On that note, y'all, we are like way over. I apologize. Thank you for allowing, humoring us while we brainstorm and daydream aloud together. And wait, Erin, you call it manifesting. We manifested. Okay, cool. Folks, if they want to learn more from you, the website is play-spark.com. Beautiful. And you can find them on Instagram at play underscore spark. Be careful with your paychecks. It's delightful. And everybody, we love it when you follow us on First Bite Podcast. Check us out on First Bite Facebook page. Head on over to Apple Podcast. We love it when you hit us up with a five-star review. Also, don't forget Chasing the Swallow is out and officially has been out for a year, which is crazy train. And we love it when you pick up a copy of it and leave a review on Amazon. Erin, am I forgetting anything? I don't think so. Oh, it's getting slightly less nerve wracking to talk about those things, but we're doing it. You're doing amazing. Yeah. I'm going to replay all of this back in my head later tonight, but you know, we're fine. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Everybody, thank you so much for hanging with us. And I do believe that we are just a couple of episodes away from our 200th episode. So stay tuned. Aaron and I will have plotted up something joyful to celebrate that. So Serena, Kylie, thank you for joining Erin and I today. Thank you so much. Thank you. Feeding Matters guides system-wide changes by uniting caregivers, professionals, and community partners under the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Alliance. So what is this alliance? The alliance is an open access collaborative community focused on achieving strategic goals within three focus areas, education, advocacy, and research. So who is the Alliance? It's you. The Alliance is open to any person passionate about improving care for children with a pediatric feeding disorder. To date, 187 professionals, caregivers, and partners have joined the Alliance. You can join today by visiting the Feeding Matters website at www.feedingmatters.org. Click on PFD Alliance tab and sign up today. Change is possible when we work together. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode, as well as the ones that are archived. And as always, remember, feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind and feed those babies.
right. So it's Michelle Dawson here, and I need to lay out my disclosure statements. So uh, if you ever wondered how bad my ADD, ADHD, and lack of sleep Monday through Monday actually as well. Here you go. These are my non-financial disclosure statements. I volunteer with Feeding Matters. I'm a former treasurer with the Council of State Association Presidents. I'm a past president with the South Carolina Speech Language Hearing Association. I am a current member of both ASHA and Skisha. And for this year, for 2021, I volunteered for the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Planning Committee for the ASHA 2021 convention. My financial disclosures. All right. So I receive compensation for first bite presentations, as well as talking teletherapy and understanding dysphagia from speechtherapypd.com. I also receive royalties from speechtherapypd.com for ongoing webinars that I have on their website, as well as compensation from PESI Incorporate for a lecture course that a webinar that I have on their website as well. I am coordinator for clinical education and clinical assistant professor for the Masters of Speech Language Pathology program at Francis Marion University in Florence, South Carolina, for which I receive an annual salary. I also receive royalties from the sale of my book, Chasing the Swallow, Truth, Science, and Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders that I self-published and is available on Amazon. And I do receive royalties from the accompanying 13 and a half hour CEU for the book from speechtherapypd.com. So yeah, I stay pretty busy, but those are my financial and non-financial disclosures. If you ever have any questions, please feel free to reach out. All right. Thanks y'all. Bye.